You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. Our scripture lesson for this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Let's hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason I receive mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So last week I shared with you an expedition that Suzanne and I took last year to England in which we turned what should have been about a 30-minute journey from London Heathrow to our hotel into a two-hour expedition around central London because the rental car that we were in would not go any faster than 25 miles an hour. It was a horrendous experience that I still live with today. Good times, good, good times. We did finally uh, make it to our hotel and then from there we drove up to northeast England, about 250 miles north of London, uh, where I grew up. And Suzanne got to experience the village of Great Ayton, A-Y-T-O-N, uh, where I lived uh, for most of my life. Uh, it's a small village of about 5,000 people and has a beautiful fish and chip shop uh, there in case you should go there and visit. But off in the distance from Great Ayton is a national landmark that nobody has ever heard of called Rosebury Topping. And that right there is Rosebury Topping from uh, a distance, probably about a mile away as you look up to it. And it's basically a large hill, which is why it's called a topping, uh, as opposed to a mountain of any description. It's only about a thousand feet in elevation, and it was formed from sandstone and is distinctive because of its shape. So you see in that picture, half of it has literally fallen off, and so there's just this sheer face on one side. And if you stand on top of Rosebury Topping, that's a picture from the top, you can see for about 40 or 50 miles on a clear day, and you see that beautiful countryside where I got to grow up, to the very left-hand side of that picture where you kind of see, a, it looks like a black blob, but it's houses, uh, that is Great Ayton, uh, where I grew up. So I got to look up at Rosebury Topping as I was growing up. Uh, it's actually named as one, a site of national importance in England by the Geological Conservation Society, But yet none of you have ever heard of it, nor have you made plans yet to go to Rosebury Topping. So add it to your bucket list uh, and, and feel free to go there. But the reason I bring that up, in 1988, when I was about 13 years old, 
I was part of a group that climbed the topping to light one of 400 beacons around the United Kingdom to commemorate the 400th anniversary of us defeating the Spanish Armada. Now, I don't think at the age of 13 I knew or even cared that that's why we were doing it. To me, it was just, hey, we get to go up the topping and do some stuff? Sure. Uh, So we climbed up to the top. Of course, it was about dusk uh, when we started climbing because the goal would be that you light the beacon as it gets dark, right? So we light the beacons, about 200 of us. What nobody really thought of was how we were going to get down from the topping uh, when it's now pitch black. And so... (laughs) Uh, There were about four or five people in this group of probably 200 uh, that was smart enough to bring flashlights, uh, but that doesn't work well for that number of people. So most of us are literally climbing down, and it kind of winds its way around down to the parking lot. It's probably a 20, 30-minute walk uh, in clear sunlight uh, down to the bottom of the topping to go home. It was quite a treacherous uh, endeavor because, of course, there's lots of levees and rivers and all kinds of things you can easily fall into. Uh, but thankfully we made it down. Today, uh, we're finishing up our series called Where's Grace? And we're looking at the lives of three prominent people in Scripture and asking, where is God's grace in each of their lives? And where might it be in ours? And in the same breath, we're looking at a hymn written almost 250 years ago called Amazing Grace that has been sung in churches for almost that long, But yet we often don't really think about these words that we're saying. So we're trying to connect this story of God's grace to the hymn that we have sung for so long. We began with the story of King David. And King David is chosen by God from an early age to be the one that God would choose and God would anoint to lead Israel and establish God's throne here on earth. And we see in that story that God is preparing him from the very beginning for the mission that lay ahead. Beginning this line of kings from David all the way to the Messiah, the king of kings. But we also know David's story for his indiscretion with Bathsheba. But we also learn in that story that while sin has its consequences, God's grace never leaves David. Nor does David stop being a man after God's own heart. This is amazing grace. And then last week we looked at the story of Peter, this outspoken disciple of Jesus who learns eventually to focus his attention on heavenly things, not on earthly things. This is the Peter who proclaims, Jesus is the Messiah, I'll lay down my life for you but ultimately denies even knowing who Jesus is. None of this surprises Jesus. Jesus is the one who tells Peter, you will deny me three times. Jesus knows just how human Peter is. Peter, not so much. But that's not the end of the story. The risen Christ restores Peter and reminds him of the mission that he had for him all along. You'll go and fish for people. In the story of the prodigal son and also in the life of Peter, we're reminded that we are all prone to walking away from God. We're all prone to going down the wrong path. But if we'll turn around, we'll find a God who loves us and welcomes us with open arms. And this is the picture of amazing grace. 
And so this week we turn our attention to the Apostle Paul. The Pharisee, first known as Saul, has been educated to understand God in the context of the law. These rules, these boundaries that the Jewish people have cultivated and developed throughout their history to to define their relationship with God. After the death of Jesus, Saul is going to Damascus to persecute more Christians. They're claiming that Jesus is the Son of God, which is a direct threat to the established leadership of which he is a part. It's a direct threat to the Jewish people, and it's a direct threat to their entire understanding of who God is. So Saul heads towards Damascus, and he's met there by the Spirit of the risen Christ. Now, despite being a well-educated, highly seasoned, well-respected teacher, it's a telling moment when Saul is greeted by the risen Christ who says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which Saul responds, who are you? (laughs) Saul is doing what, what he believes is the right thing to do. He's doing what he thinks God would want him to do. But in this moment, we discover that Saul really doesn't know who God is at all. So Saul gets up off the ground, and even though his eyes are open, he can't see. For three days, he's without sight, has no food, no water, and God goes ahead of him. He goes to Ananias and says, Ananias, Saul is going to come to you, and you're going to lay your hands on him. And Ananias goes, I don't think so. I know who Saul is. But Saul goes, he's led to Damascus. Ananias lays hands on Saul. And something like scales fall from his eyes. And his sight is restored. He gets up, is baptized, and proclaims Jesus is the Son of God. As we know the rest of the story, Saul becomes Paul and spends the rest of his life living out that calling to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. He certainly is one who was once blind, both both physically and spiritually, but now he sees. If you recall in the story of the hymn Amazing Grace, it was written in 1772 by a former slave trader, John Newton. And as he prepared for a New Year's Day service, he began with the question posed by King David. Who am I? And this question helped him to realize that God's grace must be amazing if it can save even a wretch like him. A man who described himself as a great blasphemer. A man involved in the slave trade for much of his life, but later becomes an Anglican priest and is partly responsible for the abolition of the slave trade. In his journal, he writes, So blind and stupid I was, but he who is eyes to the blind was leading me in a way that I knew not. Newton, much like Paul, is convinced that he is the worst of all sinners. He said several times that his sins are far too great to be forgiven. But he also learns to understand this Christian journey that we're all on. 
When we're convicted of our sin, we're called to repentance, we're called to turn around, we're called to put our faith and trust in Christ the hour that I first believed. The journey that we then share through life, seeking to be devoted disciples, t'was grace that brought me safe thus far. And ultimately finding a sense of joy and peace as we continue to live into this calling, the grace that leads us home. Newton went home in 1807. And one of his final visitors on his deathbed as he's giving up his life recorded some of his final words. My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. I'm a great sinner. But Christ is a great savior. This idea of blindness for John Newton is best told in John chapter 9 where Jesus heals a man who is born blind. And he heals him on the Sabbath. (laughs) Jesus' disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither one. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. And Jesus reaches down and makes mud and puts it on the man's eyes and he goes and washes in the pool and all of a sudden he can see for the first time in his life. The crowds are amazed. Isn't this the man who used to beg? How are your eyes now opened? And then the Pharisees jump in. Oh, this Jesus can't be from God because he does not observe the Sabbath. How can a sinner perform such signs? You see how they see the world. So they call the man back a second time, who says to them, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. After John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, It disappeared into obscurity for about 15, 20 years in England. Nobody had ever heard of it. It wasn't until the colonies began to emerge here in America that it took root. And it made sense. And people connected with it because it articulated the story of so many who had made that journey from rags to riches, from slavery to freedom. And it became a favorite song of the European settlers, the Native Americans, and the African slaves. Of all that John Newton wrote in his life, and he wrote a lot, of all of the hymns that he wrote, and he wrote hundreds, it's a simple hymn, Amazing Grace, that has endured. Because it tells the story of one who was appalled by his sinfulness, but amazed by God's grace. Through the stories of King David, of Peter, and of Paul that we've looked at, we're reminded of one thing that we all have in common. Our humanness. King David is one who is chosen by God, anointed by God, a man after God's own heart, but he suffers the consequences of his fall. Peter recognizes Jesus is the Messiah. I'll lay down my life for you, but then denies knowing him. And has to live with that guilt. 
Saul persecutes Christians in their hundreds in an attempt to uphold the law of a God he really doesn't know. But King David doesn't stop being a man after God's own heart. And God's grace never leaves him. Peter doesn't stop loving God and is restored to the mission that was set before him from the beginning. You will go and fish for people, and he does. Paul knows who he used to be. He writes about it in several different places. But he also recognizes God's mercy, the grace of Jesus Christ that overflows in him, and the power of the Holy Spirit that still calls him to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. So neither should we stop striving to be God's people, seeking to be more like Christ tomorrow than we are today. But God's grace is not simply to be marveled at, nor is it a free pass. As Paul says, should grace increase because sin increases? No. We are to live into God's grace, to walk boldly in the life that we are called to. We all need the saving grace of a God who sent his son not to condemn, but to save. We're all lost until we're found by Christ. We're all blind until we have our time with the risen Savior. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way, cheap grace, <laughs> cheap grace, is the great that grace that we bestow on ourselves. It's forgiveness without repentance. It's baptism without discipline. It's communion without confession. Costly grace is the gospel that must be sought after again and again and again. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now see. That's my story. Is it yours? Is it ours? And again, to quote the Apostle Paul, I beg you, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. May we all hear the sound of God's amazing grace. A grace that seeks us wherever we may be. A grace that is amazing because it finds us. No matter where we are, no matter how lost or blind we may be, no matter how far down that wrong road we have gone, God will always 
always welcome us home with open arms to see God's kingdom all around us. But then by the grace of God to be called into, to be beckoned into building God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Where is God's grace? It's right here. It's with us. It's with all of God's people. It's our, go- it's our job to go tell them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your grace that seeks after us, that finds us, that calls us home. For any that are here this morning that have wandered away, that have turned away, that are halfway down the wrong road, for those that are lost, for those who cannot see your love, your grace, your mercy, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that your grace pours out and overflows here in this place. That all might know of your love, all might know of your grace that calls us, that beckons us to proclaim the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do. Amen.